Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Um, let me pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace over us and that we get to be together this morning. Um, Holy Spirit, would you fill us up? Would you encourage us and convict us and challenge us and, and fix our eyes on the beauty and glory of Jesus? That's what we need. Thank you for my friends here. Um, we love you in your beautiful name. Amen. Well, um, it's good to see you guys. Thank you for that. I mean, that is. Uh, let's just be honest. That was uh, maybe a little awkward for some of you, especially if this was your first Sunday. Um, but it's beautiful. It really is. And and I think what happened earlier with that is, is just such a beautiful picture of the church being a family and not a business. Um, if something like that happens in the business world, oftentimes it's swept under the rug and someone new comes in and it's like, what happens? Like, I don't know. Anyways, let's keep going. Um, but families talk about things and, and I just think it was so beautiful and healthy. And so thank you guys. Um, love you a ton. Um, well, my name is Brad. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you. And uh, yeah, I'll share just a moment about myself um, so that you have some context for me. We are from Los Angeles, uh, which is cool. Please excuse my accent. Um, didn't know I had one until I came here. Uh, and, and sure enough, I, I do have one. So hopefully you can understand me if I say a word that does not make sense to you. Just kind of help me. Um, but I'm married. My wife and I have been married for seven years now. Uh, she is amazing. Uh, we we're FaceTiming last night. Uh, she's just a champ. We have two little kiddos, uh, five and four years old. Um, my son, Micah, five, just started kindergarten, primary school, something like that. Um, he's And uh, my daughter, Emma, she's four. Uh, she's wonderful as well. So um, this is my third time now in Durban. I've been messing with Grant. Uh, this is the first time I'm here on a Sunday morning. I usually get shipped off to another church. Um, Andy is a friend of mine from Restored Church, San Diego. He usually comes in and preaches, uh, but I didn't bring him this time, so I get to be with you guys. <coughs> so... Um, yeah, so I, it is, it's, it's, it's fun, uh, to be with you guys. And Thursday night will be just a joy. Uh, if, please meet these three. Um, if you get time to, the, the story of God in, in the three of their lives. It needs to be some type of documentary of some sort, uh, just seeing God's grace and power, uh, and, and wisdom and humor even in their story of how God saved them and is doing amazing stuff. So, anyways. Let's get in. Um, Grant asked me to preach about evangelism, to talk about evangelism, sharing the gospel. Uh, and that's kind of a weird thing. Uh, for some of you guys, it's like, oh, no. Um, you've seen it go so poorly. It's this awkward thing. And my desire today is to help you see that it's not an awkward thing, uh, that we as human beings are evangelists. Evangelists meaning someone who's sharing the gospel, the good news, um, that whether it's the gospel, uh, good news about Jesus, or the good news about something else, you believe, and your friends believe, your co-workers believe that there is good news out there. Um, it may be about your uh, political party, it may be about your new promotion, it may be about your family, your friends, whatever it is, everyone believes that there is good news, and by nature, you share that good news all day long. Um, I was in Starbucks uh, last week, well, it was a few weeks ago, and I was just sitting there, and the gal next to me, I had my headphones on, and the gal next to me, she goes, says, hi, and she just hands me a card, and I was like, oh, thank you, and it was, it was a, uh, for a chiropractor, doctor, who kind of aligns your back, she was like, he's the best, 
It's like, well, I'm Brad, by the way. Nice to meet you. Um, but, but, but good news pours out of you. Just, she didn't know anything. Maybe I had bad posture or something. Um, but she just wanted me to know about this chiropractor. And, and you and I share good news all day long. It may be about Jesus or it may be about something else. And my desire is for you to see Jesus is so beautiful and good today that naturally you just want to share him with others. Uh, and we'll give you some, some, some ways around that. So um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, uh, it'll be on the screen at some point. And good luck reading that if you've got poor vision. But... Um, I'll, I'll read it loud and clear for you. Um, Acts 17, as a church in Los Angeles, we've been going through Acts, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, it's the history of the early church. This is after Jesus. Uh, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. And if you're a skeptic, uh, not a Christian, wherever you're at, uh, I would really challenge you to look into Acts, whether you believe that the Bible is God's word or Acts is an accurate picture of the history of the, the early church. You have to do something with the reality that 2,000 years ago, a historical man named Jesus was alive, and he had some friends, and then he died under Pontius Pilate. These are historical facts that atheists even agree with. The resurrection piece, not so much uh, confirmed by atheists, as, as I understand, um, but, but you have to do something with the fact that 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a school auditorium, both in Africa and in Los Angeles, talking about this guy named Jesus. Um, you can have theories and hypotheses about that. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but you've got to do something with it. And, and my the best hypothesis I could come up with was Jesus actually rose from the dead. It's, it's the thing that makes more sense than anything else. Um, so whatever your story is, come up with a good theory uh, that makes, makes sense of it. So um, Acts 17... Earlier on in the book of Acts, Jesus has commissioned out his disciples, his apostles, and basically all they're doing is traveling. Uh, specifically, the apostle Paul is traveling from city to city to city. He proclaims the good news about Jesus, says that this guy named Jesus, he's the fulfillment uh, of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He's bringing his kingdom now. He's giving us his spirit uh, to live. And so people respond to the good news of the gospel. They become Christians, and he plants these churches, and then he moves on to the next city, oftentimes because he's being persecuted, people want to kill him. Uh, and where we're at in Acts 17, we're going to look at uh, the city of Athens. We actually might have a map. Do we have the map? Is that possible? We don't have it. No worries. Just imagine this cool map um, right there. And, and it wasn't that helpful of a map, so it doesn't matter too much. But, but the reason why I've been trying to show our church these maps throughout Acts is because sometimes if you grew up in the church... You read about these different cities, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, um, and you begin to think they kind of line up with like Narnia, uh, that they're not real, actual historical places. And, and these are actual <laughs> historical places. You can go to these places. Um, they're, they're, they're legit. They're real. So anyways, that map was surely not necessary. So um, Acts 17, we're going to start in Acts uh, verse 16. Um, just earlier in the chapter, Paul, from Thess he was in Thessalonica, a city that he planted the gospel, uh, planted the church. He later writes to the Thessalonians, which is fun. Uh, and then he goes to Berea, and there, there he is being persecuted by some of the Thessalonians. So he runs from Berea into Athens, Greece. So, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them... He was waiting for Silas and Timothy, his buddies. He was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They thought Jesus was a God and the resurrection, the Greek word, uh, was a God as well. So they thought he was proclaiming these dual gods into their city. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the Apostle Paul, he shows up in Athens, he's walking throughout the city, and he sees that there are these idols, and, and his, his spirit is provoked, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But, but what is so beautiful about the Apostle Paul is that he's continually meeting people where they're at. So when he goes to a Jewish synagogue, he opens up his Hebrew scriptures, probably in his mind, memorized, and he preaches Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah that Genesis and onward began talking about. But when he's with the Athenian philosophers, he doesn't open up the Hebrew scriptures. He he meets them where they're at, and we're going to see that in his speech in just a moment um, of how he does that. But he's preaching, and these these Athenian, these philosophers, they take him to the Areopagus. Now, earlier, I I always thought that the Areopagus, when he gives this famous speech at Mars Hill, uh, was kind of like a philosophy book club. Um, But N.T. Wright, a scholar, says, no, no, this would be him being put on trial. He's actually going to have to be defending what he's doing because uh, Athens is actually very famous for a guy named Socrates who was put to death for corrupting the youth and challenging the Greek gods at the time. So Paul comes into the same city preaching about a different god, sounding like this could corrupt the youth quite a bit. So they put him on trial. So Paul now is going to be on trial at the Areopagus saying, hey, let me explain what I was talking about. So um, let's roll on to verse 22. I'm going to let the whole, we'll just read through the whole speech and then I'll, um, we'll spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking and having some fun there. <clears throat> verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and now he's going to quote two of their Greek poets, In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Pretty brilliant speech. We'll unpack it in a little while. If you were lost, we'll wrap up with this. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, uh, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so a lot going on there. But he's standing on, on somewhat of a trial, and, and he uses his opportunity, not just to defend himself, but actually to proclaim the good news about Jesus. But he does it in such a way that he meets them where they're at. The fancy word for this is contextualization. He knows that he is in a specific context and he wants to help these people understand the message of Jesus in a way that they will understand. Tim Keller, a favorite pastor friend of mine who I've never met, he defines, (laughs) he's in Manhattan, New York, he defines contextualization this way. He says, contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments with force that they can feel even if they reject them. See, a lot of times when we share the gospel with people, we don't take their story into our our understanding. We just maybe share whatever it was that we heard growing up. Or maybe the gospel that you heard that helped you understand Jesus more clearly, you just regurgitate that and throw that on anyone and everyone going, ah, it didn't work. Because you haven't taken the time to think about where they're coming from. Their different backgrounds, their different languages, their different contexts. Paul does the hard work of contextualization and he brings the good news to bear on them in a way that they would understand. Now, some reject and some receive. And this is how it always is with faithful gospel preaching. But I want us to get this, um, that, that he does this in such a beautiful way, that there's five main things that I grab from this text that I see that will help us be better at contextualizing the gospel here in Durban. You understand the culture far better than I do. Um, so I, I want to just give you a few things that I see Paul doing here that will help you do the same in your sharing of Jesus with people. Um, the first one is this, to love Jesus and people. And now this may seem like a no-duh, but, but it's, it's here and it's essential. And it's the reason why some of you even today, um, you hear evangelism sharing the gospel and you're like, no, thank you. Uh, because you actually don't love Jesus or people. And, 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 and I'm not here to try to guilt you into this. I think one of the worst things you could do is if you don't know Jesus, is to go talk about him to others. It's like it starts with him. You have to actually meet him and know him and share out of love rather than guilt. The Apostle Paul does not show up to Athens and go, got to do this again. Oh man, hey guys, so there's this guy named Jesus and he loves you and he died on a cross and I'm so sorry. He, he's compelled by love, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. 
It's love. The love of Jesus compels him to share the good news of the gospel. And a lot of us share the gospel out of guilt. It's like, it's been a year. I guess I should do that soon. That's not what he's doing here. See, the way that we can share the gospel most compellingly is that we understand first that it is God who loves us. 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. If you try to share the gospel with people, try to tell people about Jesus in order to get God to love you, it will be a disaster. You will only share the gospel in a compelling, gracious way when you understand that he loves you first. He does not love you based on you sharing the gospel. He loves you perfectly because of his finished work. Him sending, he sent his son for you before you were born. His love is not based on you. It's not based on how many times you've shared the gospel. It's not based on how many times you've led people to Christ. It's based on the finished work of Jesus. And when you get that, there begins to be a compelling nature to love others and share the good news with them. And you see it in verse 16 here in chapter 17. It says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. That that Greek word provoke means to be cut alongside. Last year when we were here in Durban, we went to the, the Muti market. Is that correct? Um, and we were just checking out all, all these things that were being sold and, and, and the, the magic and all that stuff. And it reminds me of, of, of this. That, that, that you could walk through that market with you know, your, your chin lifted high like, how dare these people do this? Or you could walk through that market with your spirit being provoked to be cut alongside that they don't know Jesus, that they're missing out on the power and the wisdom and the grace of Jesus. And I want to I share the gospel that would even relate to them in such a way, not because I'm better, not because I've figured it out on my own brilliance or logic, but because God himself has revealed himself to me. And I want to meet them where they're at and love them and share the good news with them well. See, it's when we understand that he first loved us that we'll share the good news with others. Um, We have just a a really fun story in the last few weeks. God's done some cool salvations with some people. Um, There was a guy I was sitting at a coffee shop with. Um, I didn't know him. I had my headphones on. He ends up tapping me on the shoulder. uh, And (laughs) it's a long story, but he ends up getting saved right there. Um, God, miracle. I've been praying more. Just God would would acts be more of our reality. The American church, I, I just don't think it, has you in it much, Jesus? Would you, would you let Acts define our church? Would you let us see your power and your spirit move beautifully? And, and God's begin doing these things. And so this guy ends up getting saved. That day we baptize him a couple weeks later. And his girlfriend of five years, uh, two weeks ago, gets saved. Um, and she had been hearing the gospel. He's like in this weird spot where he's like goes back to her. He's like, I'm a Christian now. And they've been talking it out. And um, so he's like, hey, can you just meet with it? We don't know what to do. Like she's interested in Jesus. So I get lunch with them and, and we're, I'm sharing the gospel with her. She said this so brilliantly. Um, I said, so do you, do you, do you want Jesus? Uh, like, do you want to put your faith in him? And she says, yeah, I, I really do. Because what I've started to understand, she has a Catholic background. But she, she doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, never put her faith in Jesus. She said, what I, what I see for the first time with what you're explaining with the gospel, she said, I, I get this picture that my entire life I've been trying to be good and I've been running after God. But God has his back toward me and just kind of like walking as I'm chasing him desperately. She said, but what you're saying about, about the gospel, I, I get the picture that I've actually been the one walking away from him and he's chasing after me. He's the one pursuing me, and it's me with my back turned to him. 
And I've been told my whole life that I need to love God, but, but I've never found him lovely until I understood that he was the one pursuing me in my sin and rebellion. I was like, yeah, it sounds like the Holy Spirit's doing some stuff. <laughs> you want to preach next Sunday? This is it. So um, I want Jill to come up. Jill's uh, a gal who got saved in our church, and she's going to share just just a, a brief testimony of how her interaction with, with others, loving Jesus and loving people well, um, led her to Jesus. Please. Woo! I will say this. I have a tendency to cry all the time, especially when I talk about Jesus or whatever. So if I cry, it's very normal. You'll back for me. Um, but just a little bit about myself. Like Brad said, my name is Jill. Um, I got saved a little under two years ago at Restored LA. Um, I grew up Catholic, and that was my background. So God, God was not foreign in my upbringing. Um, I knew Jesus, the name of Jesus, but especially in the Catholic background, um, it's very structured. So God was here, then Jesus was the Son, and then the Holy Spirit was like a ranking of the three. So that's kind of all I knew. That was my experience. And um, it, at 24 years old, um, my mom passed away from a heart attack. My uncle had a heart attack, um, didn't make it. And when we told my mom, she had a heart attack and didn't make it. Um, and as a result of that, I completely walked away from any kind of faith, God, whatever. Didn't even murmur the words God. If anyone used God towards me, I laughed in their face. I mean, I very much ridiculed the church or anyone who had any kind of faith, upbringing, whatever, um, I believed in karma. So, so much of my life became about um, doing good in hopes to receive good, and part of that was I worked for E-Entertainment, as Grant had shared, and I left that career and started uh, a career as a personal trainer because I wanted to help people change their quality of life. Um, so, obviously, if I did that, their life would change, and then life would be great for me, and so on and so forth, karma just continued. Um, and fortunately, while working at E, I met Paolo, who's my best friend. I call him my brother from another mother. Um, and he and I just like hit it off instantly. And then eventually, um, Ryan started working there. Um, he's my friend at the time, he's my husband now. Like Brad said, God has a sense of humor. We're happy to share that you know, later on. But, um, Basically, uh, Ryan had grown up in the church and had a relationship with Jesus and was always very open about it, so much to the point where, you know, he'd be working out and basically just ask, like, or I would be like, what are you doing? What are you listening to? I know I work out to hip-hop. He's like, oh, working out to Christian music. I'm like, that's super weird. <laughs> 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 what? Like, that's really weird. Okay, anyways. Anyways, moving on from that point. But um, So he was always very open, sharing his faith, but never was to the point where, like, he spoke the gospel to us or like preached Jesus to us or ever pointed out anything like that. So he just befriended um, Paolo and I really, really well, I mean, extremely well. So much so to the point that the three of us actually became roommates and that's how close our friendship had become. Um, and a big part of that was because um, there was a genuineness to his heart for Paolo and I. And it was never an agenda like, man, these people don't know Jesus. I want, they need to know Jesus. It was man, these people, they're, they're lot. and I don't mean like these people as if, you know, non-Christians, that's what we call them, but I know that his heart for that was that he knew that our lives were not in line with Christ, and he grieved at that truth, he grieved at the fact that we didn't have a savior, and because of that, he pursued us in a way that was so genuine, so much so that um, 
Uh, Paolo, as you guys, you know, you'll have your LGBTQ thing with him on Thursday. Paolo is gay, and uh, part of the way Ryan just loved him well is he would go out with Paolo to an area of LA called West Hollywood, which was is a, just a strip of gay bars. And so, you know, I, like I said, I didn't grow, really grow up in the church, but from what I knew about the church, Christian people didn't hang out with gay people, let alone go out with them to bars to help them feel more comfortable or understand and love them better. And then another one is I grew up with most of my friends my entire life since I was five years old. And on um, Mother's Day, the year I ended up getting saved, um, for the first time ever, I had a friend ask me if he could go with me to visit the gravesite where my mom was buried. And that was Ryan. And I've never had anyone who didn't grow up with me ever extend that heart to me or that desire to just want to partner with me in the really hard times. And then on top of that was also the celebrations. Um, he was very much there for Paul and I, not only in the challenging, but in the joyous times. And so when it comes to evangelism, I, you know, Ryan wouldn't say this, and I'm not just trying to you know, throw him under the bus, but he would have called himself an evangelist. He called himself a Jesus lover and Christian. And I think the big thing when it comes to evangelism is, you know, I definitely believe in the fruits of the spirit. A lot of people think, man, I just don't have the gift evangelism, so I can't do it, you know, I don't, I'm not able to do it, but he had the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he was so moved by the truth of Jesus loving him and needing and wanting him that he was able to just um, not speak the gospel into their lives, but really live it in action, and so, so much of my walk coming to know Jesus was because I got to tangibly, really, truly feel the pursuit of of a heart that loved Jesus and wanting to genuinely do that in my life as well and in Paolo's life. And, you know, as a response, we were two non-Christians who started going to life group. You guys call it life group, I believe. We started going to life group with him, which is very weird as well. And the community, I know we did everything. We were inseparable. And the community there at the same time, they didn't know us, but man, they loved us. And they partnered with us. And they wept with us. And they walked in this journey with us. And Really, ultimately, they just opened their hearts. They were vulnerable, vulnerable with us, and they spent the time to really care um, and be intertwined in our lives. And and so, you know, definitely, when it comes to the evangelism aspect, um, like Brad said, love Jesus and love people. I mean, I, I really truly believe the way we came to know Jesus. We walked into Restore uh, May fifteenth, two thousand sixteen, and five months to the day, October fifteenth, two thousand sixteen. Ryan baptized Paolo and I, um, and it truly was because we got to experience Jesus through the tangible acts of the, the, the community that knows him, the community that loves him, and he never, you know, really sat there and spoke the word, or was like, you're a sinner, he was like, man, I am a sinner, he's like, this is why I need Jesus, let me walk in this life with you, let me walk in partner with you, and as a result, um, yeah, we got saved, and you have to baptize us, and that's my husband, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I guess that guy. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's part of the reason I want her to share that is, is when you understand the gospel, that it really is, it's, we love others because we've received love. It changes evangelism. Now, it's changed the way I even speak about evangelism. I mean, there are non-Christians, I, I presume, in this gathering right now, and this is just weird. Uh, it's like we're talking about how to share the gospel with you. But when I understood grace for the first time at 20 years old and Jesus saved me, it, it changed the way I understood evangelism. Because we're not after you to get something from you. We just want to give. 
And, and if you receive Jesus and you uh, respond and you go, yeah, I want to become a Christian, like I don't get extra brownie points. Like God doesn't love me more for that uh, because his grace and his love is conditioned based on Jesus, not on me. I believe every other religion, if they're trying to convert you, it's, it, in some ways they're, they're, that their God will love them more. Uh, that there's works that create a love and compassion, I guess, based on their work. So they could end up using you in order to get God to love them more. And Christianity is fundamentally different. God can't love you more based on what you do. So the first thing is loving Jesus and loving people. We'll wrap through the, the next ones pretty quick. Um, the next one is listen to their stories. Look at how Paul does this in Athens in verse 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul does not just show up in Athens and go, let me get my gospel script out. Uh, you're, you're all going to hell, uh, repent or turn and burn. No, that, that's not what he does. He walks into Athens and he begins just listening to the stories, the narratives of their culture. And he's walking around. He sees that all these different idols, you have the idol, you have Zeus and Hermes and Aphrodite. And then there's a temple, there's an altar to the unknown God. And as he looks at that, he begins to think about how the good news of Jesus would apply to that. So when he gets up to defend, to to share the good news, he, he listens to their story in order to share the gospel to their story. He spent time listening. Friends, do you listen to your culture? More importantly, do you listen to your friends? In the age of social media, we are awful listeners. Social media is all about you just talking, and you don't care if anyone's even listening. Twitter, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. Think about that. That's all you're doing. You're just vomiting on people thinking they're reading your stuff. It has nothing to do with listening. It has to do with you output. And you can follow the five people that you think are awesome. Listen to their stories. You will not be able to share the gospel in a helpful, compelling way until you've heard their story well. Francis Schaeffer, brilliant theologian, pastor, he was asked one time, if you had an hour to share the gospel with a non-Christian, how would you do it? He said, I'd spend the first 55 minutes listening to their story so for the last five minutes I could share the gospel in a significant way. How beautiful. How many of us would spend 59 minutes talking at someone and then kind of be like, did that make sense? Listen to their story so that you can better apply the good news to their lives. Thirdly, like whatever is similar. So love Jesus and people. Listen to their stories. Like whatever is similar. Verse 22, I already said it. Look how he starts his speech. I see that you are very religious. He doesn't start off with, you guys are awful. Punch you in the face. He said, ooh, I like your religious stuff. That's nice. And then in verse 28, he says, quotes two of their poets. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is fascinating. Some of us, when we meet someone who isn't a Christian, the first thing you do is attack their belief. 
You go, oh, you're wrong. Let me tell you why. Does that ever go well? I mean, like for those of you who are married or have roommates, when your spouse or friend comes, you goes, hey, so you're really stupid and wrong, and I want to give you five reasons why. Are any of you like, let me, sorry, let me get, get a paper and pen. What, what were those things? Can you help me? No. You, tell, you, you start a conversation off with an attack, I'm coming after you. You think, I have five things wrong with me? I've got 15 things wrong with you. But that, that's how human nature works. I mean, one of the, the books I've been reading is Dale Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, written in the 30s, still on the top charts of Amazon. He's a brilliant understanding of human nature. Brilliant. He just is like, hey, if you start off with an attack, it's not going to go well for you. And Proverbs said it far before Dale Carnegie did. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You can relate to people. You can like whatever is similar. If someone believes in a God, even if it's a different God from you, you can be like, nice, I believe in God too. You don't have to start off with all the differences. Yes, we get to those things. I'm not like, it's all the same thing. No, they're very different. But we don't have to start with the differences. We can actually start on common ground and go, oh, I do like that. Man, that loving people, I am into that. That's good. We like whatever is similar. And it's very helpful in our evangelism and our sharing the gospel with people. Very, very important. Fourth, this is going to sound contradictory, but it's not. Look for problems. So yes, like whatever is similar, but look for problems. I love how Paul brilliantly does this in verse 29. So Paul's just quoted their own poets, and he's like, yes. It's verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring. So, so Paul takes the poets, their own, it's not Hebrew scripture here. Usually Paul quotes Old Testament. He's not quoting Old Testament here. He's quoting one of their poets, and it, what they said is, we are indeed his offspring, talking about God. So Paul, he likes that. He's like, oh, because Paul knows Genesis 1. We were made in the image of God. So one of their poets has said that we are God's offspring, and he's like, that's close enough to what I believe, that we are made in the image of God. So he likes that, that there's similarity, but then he moves it and begins to show a problem with that. Verse 29, he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So do you see this? He agrees with premise one. The, the, the first part of the argument, he's like, yeah, we are God's offspring. God, God made us in his image. But then he's going to disagree with the conclusion. Because the conclusion, what is the conclusion of their argument? Well, we've got some rocks, stones, gold, and silver. That's what the gods look like. Paul reverses it and goes, but look at us. Aren't we relational? Don't we love one another? Don't we, don't we care for one another? Isn't there a, a relational element to us being humans? If we were made offspring from God and he's a rock, wouldn't we be rocks? Wouldn't we be gold and silver? So he flips it around and goes, maybe God's more like us. Maybe he's less like a rock and he's more relational. So he flips it on its head. And this is what we have to do in evangelism. In sharing the gospel, you can agree with things, but then you can take that argument and, and, and look for an issue that they may have. Now, that might sound up in the clouds. So, 
I'm going to try to get very practical in a few different ways that that looks. Before I do that, look at Colossians 4. I think we'll have it up on the screen. Colossians 4, 5 to 6. I'll read it. Walk in wisdom, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is why I have a, uh, an issue with the gospel tracts that get handed out. That you, you don't care about answering each person with what they're going through. You're going, here's, what, here's your problem, here's a solution. Solution, solution. It's not wrong. I'm not saying don't ever do it. It's bad. But I'm saying it's, it's not meeting them where they're at. I was in a, in a mall last week and someone gave me one. It said, are you going to heaven? I was like, I'm not really caring about that right now. A lot of people in America don't, don't even think heaven's a real thing. So you get a tract going, are you going to heaven? People are like, that's ridiculous. No, thank you. It's not answering person where they're at. So, so I want to give you a few examples of different types of people that you know you do life with, you run into at the coffee shop, and how you would actually begin to answer each person, at least ways that you could do that. The first person um, is, is the religious person. Okay, um, While a lot of Durban would, would probably check the box Christian, um, you're, you're going to meet quite a few other people who, who don't have the same religious views. And, and, and even those who check the box of Christian probably don't have an accurate understanding of God's grace and his love for them in Jesus. But um, where I'm at in Northridge, uh, there's a heavy uh, Muslim population. Uh, at the Starbucks, the coffee shop I go to, uh, there's just a lot of men and women who, who worship Allah. And uh, I've really had a ton of conversations with them uh, about the difference between Jesus and uh, Allah and, and, and Muhammad and, and all these things. And one of the questions when I'm, I'm listening, I like a few things. I like I like that they believe in God. I believe in God. We're, we're, we're like cool there. But something that I, I want to point out is differences and, and questions I want to ask specifically to my friends of the Muslim faith. Um, one of the questions I always ask is, well, what is it like for you never knowing where you stand with God? See, every religion is different than Christianity. Christianity is, says that you're saved by grace alone. It's God's unmerited favor, his love for you based on the work of Jesus. Every other religion is works-based. You can get God to love you more by doing X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z changes, the name of God changes, but that's every other religion in the world. And so I always want to push, because if, if it always comes down to works, any, any true Muslim will tell you, they, they don't know if they're truly saved or not, because at the end of the day, it comes down to a final judgment of, of works. And you don't, you're not 100% sure if your works outnumbered the, other, the good ones over the bad ones. So you don't have assurance. Christianity is the only guarantee. You have assurance because it's not based on your good works or your bad works. It's based on the perfect work of Jesus. So you can have assurance. So I, when I ask that question, all I'm trying to do is lovingly point out a problem of theirs with, with this relationship with Allah. What's that like never knowing if Allah hates you or loves you? I mean, can you imagine... You're in a marriage and you're not sure if your spouse hates you or loves you. It's going to be a very unhealthy marriage. Your friendships, where you're not sure if they like you or they don't like you. you, you, you you'd walk into every conversation like, uh, I don't know where are we at. It's, 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 it's a sad thing, right? I mean, it would be, it would be awful. So my, my Muslim friends, I just asked that question about assurance. Because I, I think that if you don't have assurance in your relationship with God, you're, you're going to end up actually hating him and resenting him. Because you never know if it's enough. 
You're on a treadmill all day long, working, working, working. You don't know if you have the favor or hatred of God. One of the uh, things that they always bring to me, they, they make fun of Christianity and grace because they think it's cheap, cheap grace. Ah, oh, you guys just use grace as like a license to sin and you, our God is holy. So one of the questions I always ask is, well, what does, what does Allah do with sin? Like for you, like how, what does he do with your sin? Because if you end up in heaven, it actually doesn't sound like he deals with your sin. It sounds like he more or less rush, brushes it under a rug. See, my God is holy. He deals with everyone's sins, Christians and non-Christians. Non-Christians, they'll pay for their sins. They'll be judged. And Christians, Jesus Christ has dealt with their sins perfectly on the cross. He's absorbed the wrath of God. So I'm listening to their story and I'm agreeing that God is holy, but I'm actually pushing on the problem that I don't know if, they, if their God is as holy. And that, I knew that question worked well when two weeks later my buddy Tony comes to me and goes, that one's messed with me. <laughs> let's talk more. Like, yeah, let's talk more. Because his view is that the Christian God is this like pathetic, unholy God. And I, I flip it upside down. I go, no, he's more holy. He hates sin. So much so that his son had to die for it. So, so religious people, you can talk in a way like that. Let's talk about the spiritual person real quick. Uh, maybe, um, you know, spiritual but not religious or kind of that uh, syncretism where you kind of just add everything in. You're like, yeah, I like a little bit of that religion, a little bit of that religion, a little bit of that. Um, the question I'm asking is, hey, does your spiritual life ever disagree with you? Like, is there ever a time where you're kind of pushed on uh, in your spiritual life? Anne Lamott famously writes, you know that you've made God in your own image when God hates all the same people that you do. Because really what I'm just trying to get them to see, like maybe you've just created this thing. Like if God agrees with you on everything, that's probably a pathetic God. Jesus, he loves us, but he confronts us. He, he says, I love you, but you're wrong actually about these things, right? Uh, the intellectual person, um, I, I studied philosophy at Cal State University, Northridge. Um, and I sat with philosophers. Well, that's why I love Acts 17. Man, when I, when I read this, I'm like, yes. That's all we did. We sat in class for philosophy. Anyone study philosophy? Yeah, just grunt. Um, we'd sit in class all day long, and you just talk. And the professor's kind of like, yep, that sounds nice. Like, there's no truth. You just kind of argue about stuff. So I ended up writing my final thesis paper um, on atheism works until you're raped. Because I was so sick and tired of the conversations about morality of goodness and evil that it's like, well, it's just kind of up to the individual. So, so lovingly, I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't a flippant thing. It was very, very in, intentional and I asked for grace with the men and women in the room. I said, this, this works, this idea works well until this happens. And I had men and women argue with me. They, it wasn't like, well, Brad, we've never thought of that. They, they had thought about it as an atheist, because they knew that if there is no God, there is no right and wrong. You can say, I don't like it, like a taste bud, broccoli, yucky. You can do that. But you can't say that is absolutely wrong unless there is a God who has deemed that wrong because it's out of his nature. And see, in our evangelism, some of you are always angry and some of you are always gentle. Jesus was both. With the Pharisees who hurt people, he was angry. He would get angry with them, a righteous anger. It bothered him that he would put, those men and women, would, men would put bondage on others. 
and yet he was gentle with others. And we have to get both of them because not everyone is an atheist intellectual that you need to argue with like that. Some people that you know are hurting and broken. And the way you share the gospel with them needs to be different. A few weeks ago, my wife and I, we were walking to our house with our kiddos and a car pulled up right on the other side of our street and two women, uh, I believe they're in a relationship, drivers screaming at her and I watched the driver punch the girl next to her uh, in the passenger seat. The girl's sobbing. She gets out. It looks like they're about to fight. So I, I, you know, just I yell as loud as I can, looking like I'm eight foot five. Um, and 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 I, I try to break up the conversation, break up the argument. And she's manipulating. She's like, "Get out of here! This is none of your business." And I use the famous line, "You've made it my business." It was awesome. Um, and and finally, I'm yelling at the woman in the passenger seat who's sobbing. I was like, "Get out of the car now." Do not let her drive off with you. Get out of the car now. So she comes out. She's sobbing. Um, and and she, she's like, she just keeps saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was like, don't be sorry. She's sorry that like, my kids saw that. I was like, don't be sorry. With her, I'm not arguing about philosophy. With her, I'm simply asking, how can I pray for you? How can I help you? Now, I don't know. She does not know Jesus. I don't know what's going on in her life. And I say, can I just pray for you right now? So she stands there. And I just pray the gospel over her. Jesus, would you please save this girl? Would you please help her see that you are so different than the relationship she's in? Would you help her see that you are the only one who can provide the joy and satisfaction that she craves? Because we're trying to meet people differently with where they're at. And the last thing is that we do is we lead men and women to Jesus. We lead people to Jesus. Verse 30 and 31 say this. I lost my place. The times of ignorance, this is how Paul ends his speech in Acts 17. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's trying to point people to Jesus. Lead these people to Jesus. Don't win an argument. If you win an argument and they don't know Jesus, you lost. This is not about you sounding more smart, about you being more compelling. This is about men and women seeing Jesus more clearly. That's the call that Jesus has on you. And it's a call of repentance. Repentance is that a weird churchy word, but all it means is to turn. It means to turn. And, 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 and that's the, your desire, your need in evangelism, to help men and women see that they're the one running from God. God's not the one who needs to repent to find you. He is not the one chasing you or walking away from you and needs to repent and turn to you. You are the one walking away from God, and you need to turn to him. And when you get that, that's your job is to help men and women see that he's the one pursuing them. We had a guy a few weeks in our church get saved Grew up Jehovah's Witness. His wife got saved. Um, and he's been for the last two years just trying to figure out this Christianity thing. And as he and I sat down and we talked about it, I said, where, where are you at with Jesus? What do you, what do you feel like you have, you know, like what, I know you have some background in church and he rejected it and is just trying to figure it out. And he said, I, I think I'm at a place where I agree with everything you preach. I was like, cool. I was like, but, but do you know Jesus? <laughs> he's like, I don't know. I said, yeah, it sounds like you kind of have the right exam answers, but that's not saving faith. 
That's not a relationship with Jesus. What you need to do is repent. Have you brought those right answers to God? Have you turned to him, or do you just kind of have your head down like, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I need to be baptized, and blah, 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 all this stuff. Ken brought it to God. I said, do you want to do that right now? He's like, yeah, I didn't know that's what I had to do. I was like, yeah, that's it. Turn to him. Some of you actually today, I believe, have not actually turned to him. You have the right answers. If I were to ask you, did Jesus rise from the dead? You'd be like, yep. But you've never turned to him. You've never brought that to him. And when you've brought that to him, and you see his loving grace, then it compels you to turn to others and share the good news with them. To, to tell them there's a God out there who loves you deeply, who can satisfy your needs, who is for you, he's not against you, whose love is not conditioned on your good days or bad days, but based on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you that you invite us into this, that you don't just save us and leave us on the curb, but you save us, you fill us with your spirit, and you call us to partner with you, to be on mission with you. We love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're going to do. I pray that right now, even as um, we're praying and we're going to sing, that you bring names to mind men and women that, that, that need to hear about you. They don't need to hear about you from someone on a Sunday, but they need to hear about you on a Wednesday morning in the break room, Tuesday in class, Thursday in the neighborhood, wherever it is, Jesus. We love you in your beautiful name. Amen. Um, we're going to go into a time of responding and, and worshiping through music. Um, and we're also going to have... A, a few people up here to pray. Uh, are they going to be up here, back there? Up here? Sweet. Um, I, I, here's what I'd love to do. I'd, I'd challenge you to receive prayer today during this song. One, maybe just prayer that, that the Spirit would fill you up so that you could be bold and share the good news with men and women. Or two, I think that some of you today need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time. That maybe you're realizing, yeah, maybe I have the right answers, but I haven't brought that to Him. Would you bring that to Him today and say, will you save me? Will you forgive me? Will you adopt me into your family based on the work of Jesus Christ? Okay?
Lord, I just thank you for every part of this morning, Lord. Our prayers, our vulnerability, moments of just being family together in this room. I thank you for Brad and Jill just sharing their stories and your incredible grace, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, for anyone leaving here today, Lord, either for questions answered, for people to have responded to you in the way they need to, and for each of us in this room who are following you, I really do pray for courage. I pray for power. I pray for grace in us as we go in this week to really follow you and to share this message with other people. We really do pray for our family, for our friends, for our co-workers, for our neighbors, Lord, to come to know your love in the way that we have. And I pray, Lord, that you would help to break down whatever walls in us need to get out of the way for us to represent you in the way that Jill has spoken about and Brad has spoken about today. So would you help us to be this kind of church, we pray. Amen. If you still would like to chat to someone this morning, there are some people in the front. I know maybe some of you are feeling a little bit shyer. We would love you to come and chat to someone rather than just leaving here with questions unanswered or prayers unprayed. But otherwise, please grab some tea and coffee outside. We'd love you to meet someone new. Why don't you chat to some of our American friends and have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you guys soon.